listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Secret will we tell? I learn to know you well. This moment, how soon, too soon, the hours fly. I hear the clock go ticking by. I won't pretend the time has been my friend. I bring my song to sing my song for you until the end. And as I live my days, I count the wondrous ways that brought me here to praise this moment. How soon, too soon, the hours I see my life go rushing by I only hope that time will be your friend We live a life to give a life with love Oh, don't you see? So if you'll agree Then come along with me This Good evening, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. Uh, we're back after a brief holiday hiatus, so if we took a few weeks off to regroup and get our get my act back together, but welcome, and I'm so happy to be back, and I'm so happy to have everybody back tonight. Um, before I introduce our guest, and just wait, it's such an exciting night, and our guest is so fascinating, and her story is amazing, I want to give those who are new to Morph Mom Moments just a quick introduction about what you got yourself into tonight. Uh, my name is Kathleen Smith, and I founded Morph Mom, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M, about five years ago. Uh, I had been a prosecutor prior to that many, many years ago, many, many, and um, worked through my first child, tried to work for my second, I stopped with always the intention of going back. But 14 years later, which went in a blink of an eye, I realized after three kids, how was I ever going to go back? I didn't know what to do, didn't know where to begin. I had no confidence. I had no, just no starting point. And I thought rather than reinvent the wheel, why don't I go out? and interview all the women out there who have done this, who have been through this and have figured out different roads to take. So rather than trying to create something, I could instead share what others had done and hopefully inspire others looking for something to do or connect them with something, connect them with a similar thing that someone had already done. 
So that began about five years ago. And we have interviews on the website, which is morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. We have over a thousand interviews from all over the country sharing every possible story you can imagine. And as this began, originally it was moms going back to work. But it did begin to morph itself when women would call and say, I'm not a mom, but I have a story that could help. Or I'm a mom, but I never left work and I have a story that could help. Or I have a story that has nothing to do with going back to work, but possibly uh, c- covering a tragedy or, or starting a nonprofit or doing something that would help somebody out there. So the, the, the new priority became something that could help someone out there and connect with somebody. So over the course of five years, we have stories that range from, I, I can't even begin to explain the the parameters of where we are. They really cover everything. And I'm so appreciative to all the women out there who have been so kind to share these stories. We also have a Huffington Post column if you want to read about the stories. We have cocktail parties we do around the country. We have conferences. And if you go to morphmom.com, you'll learn about when they are and how to sign up. Our next one is going to be in New Jersey in April. And one of the most fun things we do is the radio show. So without further ado and without listening to me anymore about Morph Mom, let me get to why I'm here. We have the radio show because it's another con- another great way, a conduit to share these amazing stories. And tonight is exactly that. I'm thrilled to have Roberta Morris Purdy on my show tonight. She is the founder of Karmic Release Limited, a co-founder of Karmic Release Limited with her husband. Prior to that, she was an assistant to director Lee Grant. Um, since they have created Karmic Release, they've produced over 18 films, I think that's since 1992, and have won Emmy, a Peabody, a DuPont Columbia, a Cine Golden Eagle Awards. And in 1999, they were up for the Academy Award shortlist. And um, I guess the, the, the theory behind the company that they created was a way to bring independent voices a home. So without further ado, Roberta, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kathleen. Oh, it's an absolute honor to have you here, and I love what you've done, and I can't wait for you to share it with everyone. Um, so as I said, you're, you're now the co-founder of Karmic Release, which is your, where you're currently doing. But tell us about how uh, you sort of ended up where you are today. Give us a little bit, like, were you always interested in film? Were you always, was this something you always thought you'd end up doing? Never. I never <laughs> even dreamed there was a career in film. Um, It was happenstance. My husband and I lived in Malibu, California, and our neighbor was Lee Grant. And her little child, who was about seven at the time, uh, was just kind of hard for them to manage between driving to the studio, uh, doing whatever else they're doing in their lives. Malibu's kind of a small town, and, you know, this was a kid that needed to get to school and get home from school, and it was tough. So I met them because I once picked their child up at school and drove her home. And that opened up a relationship that has lasted for me for over 30 years. Prior to that, had had you worked before then, or or what were your interests prior to that? I I had worked. I had my education is early childhood education. So I had worked, you know, a little at that moment in Malibu. There's not a lot of industry in Malibu. It's very much a bedroom community. But we did have, at the time, what was called Warner Cable. And we were so happy to have it because it was the only way you could get any TV reception in Malibu. 
So I, I was working on a project there that had to do with construction of all the poles that would carry the cable to Malibu, which people couldn't wait for. All we wanted in those days was MTV. <laughs> That's right. It was so new. Remember that? <laughs> the first game? Yeah. My kids will never understand that. what that was like. <laughs> no. <laughs> So after that, so you met Lee Grant, and, and how did the conversation begin? Like, how did, how did you, you end up working with her? Well, you know, it was very casual. In, in Malibu, you have to go to the post office and retrieve your own mail. So she asked me if one day after I picked up her little girl from school, would I get the mail? And I picked up the mail, and in the mail was a script, and she said, oh, I don't have the energy to read it. Will you read it for me and tell me if it's any good? And I said, well, sure. And it was Plaza Suite, which, of course, is a very good movie. Wow. Yeah, and this was going to be a co-production with HBO, and it was done as a play for to be televised on HBO. So it was a, a very hybrid kind of new thing, and HBO wanted to be sure that the two actors who were Lee Grant and Jerry Orbach played all the roles, uh, that they had the support they needed. And what Lee Grant felt she needed was somebody just like me uh, to come and be sure that she knew all her lines on set. And once HBO opened the door to have a person who did that work, then it became my role to sit on the back of the stage and give Lee Grant and Jerry Orbach to be standing by in case anyone forgot where they were in the script, you know, dropped a line, whatever happens in live theater. I had never done anything like this before. <laughs> Did you like it? I, I was petrified. I was <laughs> nauseous. The two old pros had no problem doing the show time after time after time. I was so nervous. <laughs> So did that sort of give you a taste for that world? Like having well, once once that happened, it just it never stopped for me. It, it happens a lot in film when you when you get into a rhythm with someone, you get linked into their schedule. There was almost no separating us for many years from that point on, because she would be available from film to film. And I didn't really know anyone else. So in between films, I would be unemployed. And then she would get another film. So it, it just became, you know, we were linked together for many, many uh, films in California. And this is when Lee Grant was an actress. She then, after she won the Academy Award for Shampoo, she became a director. And that was, a, you know, I had a very different role once that changed. And what, what was that role? That role was to be producing for Lee Grant. And had you, did you know anything about it before you did it? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> and, you know, producing is really just all about uh, being organized and problem solving and planning ahead. Uh, you know, very, very much the things that you have to do in your own life times 150. <laughs> and did you enjoy it? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I enjoyed all of it. 
So how long did you, or I guess how many films were you involved in producing with Lee Grant? Uh, oh, I would, I would really have to think about that. More than half a dozen. Mm-hmm. And is, so that went on for a certain amount of time, and then is that what evolved into you then founding, with your husband, Karmic Release? Yes. Um, so there was, there was a break in between. Uh, we had been married for a while, and when I was expecting our first, our child... Um, I knew that, you know, keeping up this pace of movies just could not continue. It's 18-hour days, and it's a lot of stress and a lot of other things going on, and it's not compatible with having an infant. So I knew that my priorities lied at home with that baby and not with how many guys it takes to light up a set in Hollywood. So I made that choice that I would stay home with my child, and I was lucky enough at that time, my husband was under contract at ABC doing One Life to Live. So I had that luxury of being able to stay home, which so many women don't have the choice. Right. And I really appreciated that I could do that and have that time, which, you know, you know how quickly it goes, and you never get it back. Right, right. How old was your child when you decided to sort of think about getting back in? Well, he was about, he was almost four. I had, I had sort of decided that until he could really communicate and tell me what was going on in his life, with his school, with, you know, whoever his caregivers might be, I really wanted to wait until I knew that he could communicate with me in case something wasn't going well. Right. He was about three and a half, and he got accepted. And in, in, we had moved to New York City by this point, and he had been accepted into a great preschool at the YMCA. So I felt, you know, very secure and happy that this would be a time to go back to work, but not to those long movie days, to right. go back and make documentaries, which for me, are much more manageable and so important and such inspiring work to do when you really do a great documentary and find out all about someone else's life. It's very rewarding. Had you done any documentaries prior to that? Or is it, was this something that you, when you began Karmic Release, that was the intention to begin doing them then? Um, I had done a few things, but, but really it was the intention of karmic release. So when so he is about three and a half, four, and you decide, all right, it's time. I'm going to go back. When did you make the decision to found karmic release and with your husband? Like, how did that all come to be? Uh, you know, I, I think it just came from the, the freelancing life and, and thinking, you know, we're doing a lot of work for other people and really promoting their work and their brand, and why aren't we doing that for ourselves? Right. And, and But as far as, like, working together, was that something you guys had always thought would happen? No. No. <laughs> and, and, and the first one that we worked together on was, was great. It was actually a, a whole family project. The, the music that you played in the beginning of your show, that was Mr. Wallowich playing his song, This Moment. And our first B 
big documentary as a company was that film. It's called Wallowich and Ross, This Moment. And Nathan loved the idea of it because John Wallowich is such a phenomenal musician that Nathan felt, you know, that was really something that he could be involved in. He wasn't so interested in some of the other documentaries I'd made, but that one really spoke to him. When you... So starting with just the documentary in general, how do you, do you sit down and sort of say, well, this is a suggestion. Do you have a suggestion? Like, how, how do you c- come up with the idea and then both agree that this is one we're going to proceed with? Uh, well, usually it comes out of something that's happening in your life. And you get very involved in thinking about something that's happening. And then you start to think about how that could be a documentary and, you know, occasionally, if Nathan is working on another project, then I have a little more leeway. He doesn't have to be as on board if he's not doing the day-to-day of the work. So, and, and they get, you know, they come about in many different ways. Sometimes, I've made three documentaries for Lifetime Television for Women. So they come to you with an idea and ask you about, you know, how they could make a documentary about that topic. So sometimes you're thinking of them yourself, and and sometimes there's a need in the marketplace, and they come to you. Do you, um, and I, I know, do you write, I don't know exactly write, it's not like a script exactly, but do you sort of outline the documentary, or do you have others sort of do that portion of it? No. No, we do all of the research, all of the outlining. But for me, it's really about writing questions that I think I know the answer to, and that answer is what I need in my documentary. Um, I'm kind of a, a purist in documentaries. I really like them with no narration. Mm-hmm. I like subjects to speak for themselves. I I don't always approve when when someone else puts a voiceover on and changes kind of the outcome of the documentary. I really think you need to shoot it all and and have what you need. Have you ever, I don't even know if this is a possible thing, but sort of gone into a documentary feeling a certain way and then having spoken with all the participants and learned something, changed your perspective on something or have you been pretty consistent going into it and, and, and feeling the same way afterwards? I don't even know um, if that's a thing, but I was just curious. Yeah, no, that's definitely a thing. I, I usually go in, I try to go in with an open mind. Usually they are, they are things that I don't know so much about. I'm not that informed about a lot of things I've made documentaries on. And I'm discovering what it's like along with the people I'm interviewing. So, you know, some of the bigger topics, Baghdadi are, of course, is about a combat support hospital in Iraq. Well, I had some idea what it might be like to be in a war, but clearly I had no idea what it was actually like. So that was, um, you know, very eye-opening, and I still see it from both sides. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, a young man that I know going to fight in a war, but I understand that if young men I know don't do it, then why should anyone else? Mm-hmm. It's 
it's uh, if we're going to protect our country, we have to protect our country, and we have to take care of those people who are doing the work. So it was, uh, you know, it was really about those doctors and surgeons who, that's the reality. Every day, wounded people are coming through. How? And, oh, I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt you, but that one actually fascinated. So, and that's uh, the winner of a Peabody, correct? The Baghdad ER documentary? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, and four Emmys. And f- how did that come to be? And did you have to travel to do that? Can you tell me a little bit about the making of that one, sort of the idea behind it, and how you researched it and did the actual interviewing? So, actually, it's, it's kind of a, an, an odd way this one came together. It was for HBO. And I went to HBO with my team, and we wanted to make a piece on the war. And another group of filmmakers had also come to HBO and wanted to do something similar. And so the woman who's the head of HBO, Sheila Nevins, put us together and said, can we all work together on this? What do you think? And, of course, we did. And so the work got broken up in a slightly different way, and because it was in Iraq, uh, the people who went to Iraq had to be the people who were actually filming it. We couldn't all go. I'm, I'm not a camera person that could, you know, right. work at that level. So what I did was become the in-between person as soldiers were injured in Iraq. The cameraman there, who's a great guy named Matt O'Neill, he would... This was even in the early days of texting. He would text me and give me all the details on the guy who was being shipped out of Iraq. And then I would catch up with him either at the hospital in Germany or if the guy was coming all the way back to the U.S., I would catch up with him like at Walter Reed in D.C. So we were filming two different sides of what happened. And... There were all, there was a, also uh, John Alpert, who's a great war correspondent. He was on the team with Matt O'Neill, and they covered everything that happened in Iraq, and then you know just kept us up to date about who was being flown to where, so that we could keep track of the guys on this side. Was it so when they were? Um, how were the soldiers as far as? How receptive were they to being a part of the doc? Were there some who didn't, who felt less comfortable? Or what was your impression about the soldiers as they came back and their participation in the documentary? Well, when they came back, most of them were in very bad shape. So the participation that I was dealing with more was their families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's tough. And men not knowing how their children are going to react to them because maybe they're an amputee now, they haven't seen their young children, you know, for a year, and now the first time they see them, you know, they feel like their children could be afraid of them. So it was, uh, and I went to a lot of funerals. Um, how, as you were doing it, and as as sad as some and just unbelievably unbearable how much of a lot of it had to be when you when you reflect back to that 
what would you say was the most, or if there is, I don't know if there is something about this, but is there some moment in time that you were doing this that really just sticks with you or some one interviewer? I, I don't know. Is there something that really, really, really stuck with you? Um, you know, there is, and it, and it happens to be a piece that is not in the film. There was a, a young soldier, Tim Hines, who was shipped back to Walter Reed, and he at home had his family and a wife and about a two-year-old, and his wife was pregnant. And he was back in the U.S. just briefly, maybe five or six days when he died. And what sticks with me is that young mom holding her little girl's hand, pregnant, probably eight and a half months pregnant. And when when they shot off the seven-gun salute, what do you call that? Oh, right, right. When they shot that off and someone had doves that were released at that time, and when her little girl looked up and said, Mommy, look at the birds, I thought, oh, my God, this this child will never know her father. How, how long did it take to make that documentary? Uh, it took about eight months. Most of it was the editing. Mm-hmm. For a documentary, the editing is really the heavy side. When is eight months a typical amount of time for a documentary, or did this one take a little bit longer because sort of the international aspect to the, the filming? Actually, this one was shorter. Oh, really? Many documentaries that I work on take a year and a half to five years. Wow. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> I mean, I could talk about this one all. I think this is just unbelievable. Well, clearly, as award-winning as it was. Um, but you've made many other documentaries as well. Are there any other, um, I think that, so this had such an emotional aspect to it. Is there another one? I'm sorry, I missed the middle of that question. Oh, I'm sorry. So so the 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 emotional aspect to this one, in all your other documentaries, was there one that carried as much of an emotional impact as well, would you say? You know, I think all of them do. Because you are completely involved in the lives and stories of the people that you're documenting. So, and, you know, and, and some of them are happier stories. But, you know, for example, you, you can't spend a year with Kirk and Michael Douglas and not come <laughs> away feeling pretty strongly about that experience. Now, tell me a little bit about that documentary. Uh, so that documentary started as something for P- for PBS American Masters. And we were given, uh, and Lee Grant was working, was directing this, and I was producing this. And we were given some, what they call development money, to, you know, get together what we wanted to show them so that they could see what we knew, that this would be a great film. And when we were done with the development process part of it, American Masters decided they didn't want to do it. But, of course, that was way too late for us because we were so involved. And nobody wanted to call Kirk Douglas and tell him that (laughs) PBS didn't want to make his movie. (laughs) So, you know, we put that call off for a while, and then, you know, we finally told him, like, 
you know, they're not going to do it. We don't know how to get funded. And Kirk Douglas said, well, you know, let's just do it and, and we'll see what happens. So we just continued on. And, you know, the, the things that I found in his, his pool house was the archive for all of their family films. Like, he had a little 8mm camera back in the 50s. And they hadn't seen those films probably since the 60s themselves. So I took everything out of their pool house that was on 8mm and took it to a place in L.A. to have it all put on, you know, like digitized onto DVDs so that we could all watch it. And it was, you know, just amazing what was there. You know, that Michael, when he's a little boy with his brother Joel, um, you know, Kirk really had saved everything. He had every script from every movie he's ever been in. He had all of the letters that the kids wrote back and forth to him when he was working on location. It was just really like, you know, you, you, you felt like you were so involved in their lives. But yet, you know, when you, when you have a camera with you, there's a certain social boundary that you can break. Like, you're not going to have dinner with Kirk Douglas and ask him, you know, how faithful were you to your wife right. with all these <laughs> ladies. But when you've got the camera there, you can kind of break that social code and ask the questions that, you know, we really wanted to know the answers to. Were they amenable to the questions? They were. They were, they were very candid. I mean, Kirk is, I mean, he, he's a legend. He is a movie star of a caliber that is no more. And, you know, Michael, was, he's a big star himself. So they hadn't really, they wouldn't talk to each other that way either. Right. But when we were there, we could ask them, you know, what, what really is the problem going on with you two? They've been having a conflict since the days of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and nobody really knew what the problem was. And so we just asked them, and we got to the bottom of it. And did they talk about it openly? Yeah, they did. Wow. They did. Kirk Douglas had been in the play One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he tried to sell it for many years. He gave it to Michael at one point and said, maybe you can sell it. You're, you're a big star on streets of San Francisco. See what you can do. And Michael made a deal on the film with another person directing who didn't want Kirk Douglas to be the star. He wanted Jack Nicholson. And Kirk Douglas really felt that Michael should insist and that he should have that role. And Michael, being a very young and new producer, felt that he couldn't do that. And, you know, when they can look back on it all these years later, and Michael finally said, you know, Dad, Jack Nicholson was 24 years younger. He was better for the role. Kirk could finally see it. And you were there. Was that the first time they'd actually, do you think, sort of confronted the issue and sort of made some resolution? I, I think so. It seemed like it in that moment. Um, and, you know, it's a very awkward conversation to have. When you're having it with other people there and there's a camera, you might be more willing to jump in because you know there'll be an end to that conversation. Right. Has there ever been a time when you were interviewing 
and you felt that maybe it was almost, I, I don't even, I, again, I don't, this may make no sense, but it was becoming almost too personal. Like you almost felt like you had to take, turn the camera off for a little bit. I, I don't know. Is that sort of defeats uh, the purpose of making no. it? But I have, I have sometimes felt that it's hard to be witnessing what you're seeing and not helping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that can be awkward when when you really are watching something unfold that is complicated and hard for the people that it's happening to. You feel like you should change positions, but. But you can't. If you're there to document it, that's what you're doing. You're not really getting involved. When, when you do these documentaries, um, do they sort of give you parameters to, you know, you can come at these certain times, but we don't want you filming this. Like, is there an agreement made in, like, in advancing what access you can have to their lives and their experiences? No, I, I think it's really all built on trust. I've mm-hmm. never had anyone, you know, lay out any ground rules of what they will or won't talk about. I think they just feel that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sensitive enough to not go to a place that would be disrespectful. Right. And also, when you're, when you're filming someone, you always say to them, if you say something and you wish you hadn't said it, just tell me. Right. And, you know, you don't include that. Now, of all the other ones, and I again, you also have done TV production as well, as we talked about. And you were involved with some uh, uh, videos with Sesame Street as well. Is that correct? Yes. And actually, that happened right after Baghdad ER. Because I had a military in-bed agreement, it was very convenient for Sesame Street because we were making a series of children's programming that had to do with your dad going away, being deployed, or your dad coming back wounded, or, you know, Sesame Street doesn't really pin down where your dad may have gone. Right. It was, it was, um, actually, I believe it was, it was distributed by Walmart. I'm not sure if they had something to do with the funding. But it was an absolute giveaway for military families, and it's some really great programming. Did they approach you about it after Baghdad ER, or how did that come? To, how did that come to be? Um, you know, I think in the way they always come to be, a friend of a friend, uh-huh. someone else working there, and said, "Whoa, I can't get into any military hospitals. What do you mean?" And they told her, "This was Ilana Trackman, another director I work with." And she said, oh, I know someone who's just been in all the military <laughs> hospitals. Let's call her. That's so interesting. And then they give you sort of, they say, here, this is what we're looking for. And you sort of developed it on your own from that, from the idea? Yes. So Sesame Street is peculiar in its own way because in those programs, there's a piece with the Muppets. So... You know, I'm, I'm producing two different things sort of at the same time. There's the piece with the Muppets that you shoot in a studio with those puppeteers. And it's, you know, a story about Elmo's dad is going to go away. And so 
So there's that whole piece of it. And then there's the documentary section that shows all these real children that this is happening to. So we, we tried to do most of the puppetry first and then start finding, you know, we, we knew that we wanted children from all different parts of the country. We wanted, you know, dads that had different kind of issues and injuries. And we wanted, um, you know, families that were, we thought, you know, going to be able to get through it, families that would stay together. Because it's very hard. Did you go back to any of the families you've met from Baghdad ER? Or were these different families? These were totally different families. Most of the people I knew in Baghdad ER, with the exception of, you know, the, the young mom, the pregnant mom and her little girl, most of those funerals that I went to were single guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and some of them, the ones for Sesame Street were, had been in recovery longer. Baghdadi are, we're seeing the guys two hours after they've gotten off the helicopter. Right. Um, these people for Sesame Street, you know, they've been living at the uh, rehab at Walter Reed probably for, you know, two weeks to two months by the time we would meet them. It's so a- they were, you know, they were on the road to recovery in a way that they could interact with us and speak. It says so much, I think, just about what you can do with a documentary and just the juxtaposition of Baghdad ER, like you were saying, these soldiers coming right off, you know, right off of the the helicopters, and then to Sesame Street where you're presenting it to families and children and trying to explain to them how to get through this and you can do it. And it's just the power in what you do and what you can help people with and what you're accomplishing by doing this. And it's just so amazing to hear about this. You know, and it, it, it's, it's so amazing what happens in a, in a military family because they do have such a plan for them should something go wrong. There's a plan in place. And it, you know, in my experience, it was working. They were gathering those families together and getting them back with their soldiers and mending those families. Would you ever go back and do another military documentary? Uh, you know, I, I would on the U.S. side. I mm-hmm. would not go into the Middle East. Right, right. Um, you know, I more most recently I made a documentary with, I was hoping someone would call in and talk about this, um, in Honduras, which at the time I was there, I didn't really know much about it. It was, it was kind of a last-minute request for for two young guys who had a plan about exactly what they wanted to do, and then something went wrong, and they needed that third person to be with them, and that became me. I did not realize going into Honduras that that was the murder capital of the world. Wow. It seems such a, I mean, poverty, yes, but such a beautiful, gentle place. I, I didn't recognize the danger that, that we were in. Was that the point? What was the point of the documentary? What was, it, was it showing, that again, the juxtaposition of how beautiful the country was as opposed to the no, dangerous it, it was? It became that. The intention when we went was to show how essential 
um, these organizations over to try to help in Honduras, how essential they are to the people that they're helping. Like these, these NGOs that go over and try to, you know, make a difference, bring in some clean water, uh, you know, get some education going. That's where we started, right. and we had been invited by a, a group to come and, you know, kind of look at what they were doing. And before we left, we had traveled across the country in many different ways. On We flew there, then we took a lot of buses, including something they call the chicken bus, which is... <laughs> literally a school bus that drives through the most dangerous roadways in the world um, right through what is the drug triangle it was it was quite an experience it's a great film how long were you in Honduras for I uh, I was there about four weeks oh you were there for a long time yeah it was quite a while, and that one took a very long time to edit, um, because in, in Honduras, things just kept changing, and we were fortunate enough when we were there to interview the ousted president, who'd been put out in a coup, and a young guy who was the head of the Congress at that time, who became the president of Honduras. Oh, Wow. Right. So while we were editing, we had a, a you know a lot of ways we could go to tell that story, and you know luckily we waited and made it more logical. Now I'm sure every single one that you've done means so much to you, but is there one that sort of has a special place in your heart, or, or something that you, sort of your go-to documentary that you always sort of will discuss and want to talk about? Or I'm, I'm sure they're all like that, but I. No, absolutely. I have my favorite <laughs> okay. um, because it's evergreen. You could you could watch it the day it was made, and you could watch it today, and you'll still be right in the moment. Um, and it's the the one that you played the song for, Wallowich and Ross. This moment, mm-hmm. it is a wonderful story of of two men who spend their life in the arts and the difference that they've made on the American art scene in ways that, you know, are still coming through today. It's, it's an amazing film, and it was such a joy to make it. It was a family project. My, my brother directed it. His wife, who's a costume designer who had been a, a lounge singer in New York for many years. It was uh, John Wall, which was a very good friend of hers, and her pianist. And his partner, Bertram Ross, was the um, male dancer and co-director of the Martha Graham Company for 25 years. Wow. So they, they changed our world in ways we don't even know. <laughs> and it's, just, it's, it's always been my favorite. It is a documentary that has such appeal. You... You don't know that by the end you're going to be in love with these guys. You don't see it coming. How long did that one take to make? Now, that one, because my brother is brilliant and organized, (laughs) that went very quickly. Um, I would say that, 
You know, I'd have to ask him to be sure, but I'm thinking six months. He had a, you know, a very clear idea of what he wanted before he started. So if any, well, everybody does want and should watch all of these documentaries, everything you've produced, not just the documentaries, but their after school specials, the Sesame Street um, as well. <laughs> specials, yeah, especially if they want to see, like, all the people who were movie stars now when they were kids. <laughs> ben Affleck, Kira Sedgwick, uh, Grant Show, who's now on Dynasty. All of them were, you know, just teenagers that we had in our after-school specials. That's so fun. And they were award-winning, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the one with Ben Ep- Ben Affleck also had uh, Madeline Kahn. She won the Emmy. Uh, Kira, I don't think that one won. Oh, yes, it did. Pearl Bailey was in that. It was called Cindy Eller, which it was kind of a Cinderella story. And Pearl Bailey was the fairy godmother, and she won an Emmy for that. And wasn't Marlo Thomas in one of them also? I read that. Yeah, not an after-school special, though. That was a That was a really good movie that kind of came out of some documentary research we were doing. It's a true story about a woman in Boston who had been institutionalized when she was a teenager for mental illness at a time when nobody really knew what to do about that. And she lived in this institution most of her life before someone thought to give her some drug treatment, which I believe was lithium at the time. And as soon as that happened, she got right out and went and got her master's in mental health so she could tell everybody what they were doing wrong. Oh, wow. And Marlo Thomas played, you know, that that woman, the lead character. And she won the Emmy for that. She is fantastic. How did you get involved with after-school specials and, and that, like, something like Nobody's Child? Was that after the documentaries or was that before? That was before documentaries. Before documentaries, and, and most of those, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of, you, you meet one person and then you meet another. So some of those came through Lee Grant, and some came through uh, another wonderful woman that I did a lot of work with, uh, Carol Hart, who just died recently. Uh, Carol Hart and Marlo Thomas and Kathy Berlin had a company together, and this was uh, you know, the true story of Marie Balter and the mental hospital was something they were developing when we said, oh, maybe it should just be a movie because it's it's very hard to go back and recreate how that documentary would have been because that mental hospital's gone and, you know, the people involved aren't living. It's very hard to tell that way. So it became, you know, in those days, we called them a movie of the week. And that, at the time, was the most watched movie of the week. I think it had 40 million viewers, which in those days was like, whoa, you got everybody to tune in. Now, at that point, was that produced through Karmic Release? It was, um, no. It was, I was producing it, but just as a person. Okay. Probably the company was CBS. They, They took their own... They put their name on their things. Right, right. 
So, and for like the after school special, so with karmic release, I was, I was reading that. So it's, it's the production of documentaries from development through distribution. So if it was something yeah. like an after school special, would that be a script that was brought to you or were you still involved in the development of that script also? No, we were developing the scripts. We would, um, you know, have meetings with writers and, and look for those scripts. Those after school specials were, you know, really popular and they made so many of them at the networks. I think they were on, you know, like one or two days a week. I loved after school uh, specials. Yeah. <laughs> I love them. I remember them. Yeah. Yeah. It would be something to look forward to. I remember they were on, you know, you get out of school, have time to, you know, get some toast and watch it. Kids today would never understand that, but like you had to be home by a certain time to see them. Or that was yeah. it. You'd miss it. There's no DVR. Right. There was no recording it. Oh, I loved no. them. No. No replay. No. Uh-uh. You'd never see it again. <laughs> no. That's right. So. There- yeah. So, you know, those were, uh, we would we would find, we would ask writers for scripts, and then we would, you know, see if it was something we could um, adapt if it hadn't been written as an after-school special. And the network would also come to us and ask for, you know, certain topics. There was a really good one that I did not make called Something About Amelia or Amanda. Do you remember that one? What was it about? Maybe... It it was about a a girl whose father was a little too affectionate with her. And, you know, in those days, we didn't really talk about it all or show it all. But the feeling you came away from it with was that, you know, probably if you're 12, you don't need your dad to give you a bath. Right, right. Um, So, and it was very well done. I can't remember who the young girl was in that. I think she became, you know, a working actor after that. It's amazing, too, back when you think about that back then, like now subject you know these topics are everywhere but again kids would never understand that something being introduced in after school special like that was life-changing yeah yeah and they and they wrote them in a way that you you knew your children were going to watch that alone you were at work yeah. when you were watching the after school specials so it it was you know just enough that when you came home you could open up the discussion with them because, you know, a lot of them had some meaning behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly the ones I did. Cindy Eller, we, we know that story. Right. Uh, the, the other one with Ben Affleck was his mother. He wanted his mother to get remarried. I think his father had died. And he put an ad in the paper for her. <laughs> so it was, you know, a story about, like, can you match your parents up? Not really. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But kudos for the effort on that, at least. Getting yeah. a shot. God, that yeah, is so and, funny. And I, I remember one. I don't think I ended up doing it, but I remember a great script about, um, you know, poverty, what, what it was like when everyone got off the bus and went home, and you kind of got off the bus and waited for three hours for your mom to come back with the car because that's where you lived. Right, right. Oh, I'm, that's right. I remember that one, I think, I'm pretty sure. It was, it was amazing, right? And you sort of thought about it for days and days, what you saw. Yeah. No, those were, those after-school specials were really good programming. I agree. 
a hundred. I still, I still can remember them. Now, as you're, yeah, are, are you working on something now, or are you? I am. I'm, I'm working on a couple of things, but the the one that is, you know, really here, ready to break out, is uh, it's a film that my son Taylor Perdee wrote and directed. And he shot it over the summer in a small town in eastern Pennsylvania. And it's his take on, you know, college debt, doing everything you're supposed to do, uh, you know, do well in college, get out and get a job. And then what happens when there are no jobs? Wow. It's, it's a very interesting piece about landing back at home unexpectedly and not happily. Right. Um, and kind of, you know, some things happen. It's got a lot of music in it, folk music. And some things happen around the community, and so, uh, the community's a little depressed. The college students have no jobs. And it's, it's kind of, a, you know, an, an uplifting story about how you get out of your own way and just make it work. What's it like to see your son kind of follow in your footsteps and flourish at this, like as he's doing that? Well, he is so much better at all of this than I ever was. He is amazing. He has such um, focus and determination that, you know, he, he's just unstoppable. It, well, it's so exciting. He never would have had the confidence to write something. and t- I mean, he took it to experienced actors who've, you know, done a lot of work. And said, "Will you be in my movie?" And they said, "Yes." Wow! So he's got he's got a great cast. Um, Cassie DePiva, who's starring in a soap opera in L.A. right now, she plays the mother. Uh, his own father plays his father, which is great. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, it's so fun. Actually, someone that we've known for many, many years, a film producer said, hey, if, if you two ever do a movie together, let me know. And I said, hey, son, call him. He may <laughs> want to help you. Um, and, and then he was fortunate enough to be able to schedule around a very complicated Broadway show schedule to involve uh, a young woman, Shannon O'Boyle, who, was, who is doing Kinky Boots. Oh, wow. So, and he had a great cast, just all of them are fantastic. He, he had a, a young woman that he knew from high school who has a recording career in L.A. He asked her to come and do it, Emily Mest. He had uh, several, you know, New York musicians and actors come out. Now, when will that, has it been released or how can people get to it? It hasn't been released. It's actually... Um, I guess the best way to learn about it would be on on Facebook. It's called Killian and the Comeback Kids. And they have their own Facebook page, and there should be a video on that page. And, you know, lots of ways that people can help and be involved. We have, because it has so much to do with, you know, music and community, we've got lots of local people who were involved and... It's really a fun movie. So exciting. Roberta, I can't believe this. We have one minute left. <laughs> I don't want this to end. This was so fun. Um, so, Roberta, how can people, uh, what's the best way for people to get to your all of your work? 
karmicrelease.com. And karmic is K-A-R-M-I-C-R-E-L-E-A-S-E.com. And if you go there, there are, you know, links and trailers and probably a lot of my work is on Netflix. You could also try that. And definitely my favorite, Walla Witch and Ross This Moment, is on uh, Vimeo and Reverie is a new uh, channel out there like Netflix. And if someone's interested in making a documentary or producing something, um, they can come to you as well to Karmic Release? Sure, they could send me an email. Yeah. Okay. And that's all found on Karmic Release Limited. And again, it's K-A-R-M-I-C, Release. Yes. Roberta, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. This was so much fun. I want to talk about documentaries forever, how fascinating it is. Everything you've done is just, it's amazing. And and thank you for sharing. And I hope you come back soon. And maybe we can have your son on next time as well. We can have the family affair here on the show and talk about the new film. I was hoping he would call in while we were on. Okay, then you have to come back. <laughs> and he's got to okay, come back thank also. thank you. And everyone out there, thank you again for listening, and thank you for bearing with me for the holiday hiatus that we took. But we're back, and we'll see you next Thursday. Good night, everyone. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music.